Hi folks, this is Jack Spierka with another edition of the Survival Podcast. As always, one man's view of the changing world, the changing times, the things we can all do to live a better life. If times get tough, or even if they don't. Today is February 23rd, 2016. This is episode 1737 of the Survival Podcast. And it's Tuesday, so it's a Just Jack show. Today we're going to talk about starting businesses. It's something we talk about from time to time, but I don't do every day. I don't want to change uh, the Survival Podcast into the business hour with Jack or whatever. But I do believe that business ownership and controlling your own destiny is one of the biggest steps a person can take toward liberty and freedom and actually having the time and the freedom to craft a life in the design they choose for themselves versus have somebody else do it for you. That's why I believe government talks a lot about starting up small businesses all and uh, even has a few little trinkets and stuff to occasionally help the small business person. But in the end, government favors large business. And it's not just because large business pays government money in the form of lobbyism, which they do. It's because government and large businesses together are perfect for controlling and shaping a society in the way in which both of them want them to be. And you can't really get that done with a bunch of small entrepreneurs. So they favor big business because it favors their ends. But that means that the best way for you to not be part of their construct is to Build your own business, and that's what we're going to talk about today. I'm going to give you 10 businesses, and they're really more like business models that you could take into different niches that you could start up for very small investments. And I think you'll really enjoy today's show, even if you're not the entrepreneurial person yourself, because it will help you think better about how to monetize areas of your life and things like that. I think a lot of people are under the impression that if you're going to run a business, you have to run a business for the purpose of it becoming a full-time business that you walk away from your job to. That's absolutely not the case. You can set up small businesses that eventually become some level of a, an annuity-like income for yourself. And if you were able to do that smartly, let's say, you could put together a business that produced big whoop, $200 a month. But do the math and ask yourself what $200 a month added to your retirement savings alone would do for your life. And, and that's... That's just the power there of small business. Anyway, before I get to that, let's go ahead and take care of our sponsors. They do a lot to help take care of you by helping to make sure the show's here for you Monday through Friday, five days a week. Sponsor of the day number one today, Chef Keith Snow. Chef Keith is an awesome guy. He's a member of our expert council, long-term sponsor of the show, and he just has an awesome website. If you get over to HarvestEating.com, you're going to find all kinds of great stuff. First, you can find the stuff that he sells, his organic teas, his spices, seasoning mixes, and other products. I use Chef Keith's spices and seasoning mixes on a daily basis pretty much. Uh, if I'm not re reaching for uh, the northern Italian, I'm probably reaching for low and slow or Montana steak or... The new prime rib stuff or the chicken curry. It's just all awesome. He also teaches you how to focus on the technique over the recipe and cooking, how to make cooking a life skill, how to cook seasonally and locally. He's got a lot of great videos on his website, a lot of great blog posts, a lot of great recipes, and he's got an awesome podcast. You can find it all at HarvestEating.com. And remember, Chef Keith is a member of our expert council. If you have a question about cooking, you get it into me, and we'll get you an answer for it on a Friday show. Chef Keith Snow at HarvestEating.com. Long-term sponsor, great partner, great fellow prepper, and just one of the most awesome guys you'll ever meet. Check out his website again today at HarvestEating.com. 
Sponsor of the day number two today is Backwoods Home Magazine, the easiest company that I've ever had to endorse ever in my entire career. Um, it's really easy to endorse a company when you can look back and say to yourself, I've been this company's customer for over 20 years. That's what Backwoods Home is to me. 1994, I became a subscriber to Backwoods Home. I didn't even start the Survival Podcast till 2008. I was their customer for all of those years. In the early years of the Survival Podcast, a lot of the information that I shared with you, a lot of the teaching that I did came right out of Backwoods Home Magazine. They're an incredible company. And hey, if you haven't been a, a customer that long, consider going back and checking out some of their anthologies. They have anthologies going back to the very first year of public at Backwoods Home. If you want to get a subscription, you're a new subscriber, they have a deal for you in the member support brigade as well. Backwoods Home is an amazing publication. If they weren't, I wouldn't have been their customer this long. It's great today that I can work with people like Dave Duffy and John Silvera, Masada Yub, and Jackie Clay, knowing that you know after reading them all those years, they're now part of what I do. It's just awesome. If you check out Backwoods Home, what you'll find is a publication, sort of kind of like Grit, Sort of kind of like Mother Earth News, with a lot more homesteading stuff in it, and with a libertarian flair. Check out BackwoodsHome.com today, and you'll see why I've been their customer for so very long. Next up, let's take a look at the year that was the episode, the year 1737, because the episode is 1737. Alex Shrugged has two for us today, along with some major events. First, I have the best of all possible worlds, and I have... A, a walking all over the Delaware Nation. I'm going to read the best of all possible worlds, but I'm going to read the little bullet points of major events for this year, too, because they're quick and interesting. Major events. Benjamin Franklin is made postmaster of Philadelphia. Uh, the position of postmaster is a major political position at this time, since you meet everyone and you hear everything that's going on. So he was the center of the gossip circle, I guess. John Hancock is born. He will become a smuggler and a merchant. He will sign the direct Declaration of Independence with a large signature so that King George III will be able to read it without his glasses. Thomas Paine is born. He will be the author of Common Sense. He will also become a notable engineer. So, <clears throat> best of all possible words, the worlds. The word optimism is used for the first time this year. It is a new idea except for that one outbreak in Marseilles back in 1720, the Black Death has disappeared from Western unit, Europe and will soon disappear from the Middle East. The plague is not really gone, but the sudden reduction in, of disease corresponds to the introduction of cake soap. Plague cannot be sustained in a world of personal cleanliness. The man who co-developed calculus believed that we are living in the best of all possible worlds. His philosophy is a declaration that living beings are constantly improving themselves through reason and inter invention. His name is Lebez. And he has already passed away, but his papers and letters continue to be published posthumously. He was a deist and could not believe in a world without God, but that meant to him a God that created a world that is logical and can be understood. We are at the threshold of the Industrial Revolution, and with science and reason on the upswing, it seems anything is possible. My take by Alex Shrugged. The history segments have mentioned the births of several critical figures of the American Revolution. They were growing in the midst of a burst of hope. 
disease had not gone away, but a tremendous pressure had let up. Inoculations were not only fighting disease, but they were also lending credibility to science. The American Revolution was more than an overthrow of British rule. It was an experiment in social change. The people who long for a government that will take care of them like a father takes care of his children are longing for a world as it used to be, a world created by King George, King Obama, King Hillary. When we talk about returning to principles of the Founding Fathers, we are making an optimistic statement. A radical statement. We are expressing a belief that we need no king to create a world for us. We can do it for ourselves. A radical idea, and we are the radicals. Nice. Um, I have a couple things to point out here. Number one, I think that one of the ways that Americans today are led to believe that we are free or led to believe that American life is really, really awesome is to point to other places where it's worse and say, see, that's the alternative. And see, that's why you would have, like, This is the, is this, is the best possible world in the 1700s when people were still dying of minor diseases and things like that. Why? Hey man, do you remember the Black Death? We don't have that anymore. And life looks pretty good without the Black Death in it if you know what the Black Death is and you actually still fear it. So th there's a lesson just in that. Next, it's interesting to me that two very famous deists were mentioned today. Uh, the force of, of, the first of course being Lebez and the second being Thomas Paine. That's right, Thomas Paine, the author of Common Sense, that made the case to the colonies for the revolution, was a deist. I share that in common with these folks. Uh, I had a recent discussion with somebody about deism, and it wasn't a person trying to win me back to organized religion, but a person trying to win me over to atheism. And their response was, how can you believe in God when there is no proof? Especially if you don't believe in the Bible or the Torah or the... You know, the, the Tibetan Book of the Dead or any of the other uh, holy texts, if, you, if you're just not putting an article of faith on that, how, how scientifically can you believe in God? And I believe that deists make a reasoned case for God. And they may not define God the way that the person that's a member of organized faith or that the person that's an agnostic or an atheist does. And that's where the confusion lies. To me, God is best expressed as a singularity of all consciousness, thought, reason, energy, matter, and all things. The, the singularity being sought by the physics is in itself, in a way, God. A consciousness, a intelligence that drives the shape and form in music that is our universe, in fact, our multiverses. This reason case is made by most, most, most mathematicians at some point because they start to realize the, the, the exact precision, not with which they can calculate things, but in which things exist. That's my take by Jack Spierko. Oh, by the way, if you don't agree with my take on spiritualism as a deist, it's okay. I have no desire to change your opinion at all. I've just given you mine. And I think the lesson there is that we need to be better about that with most things, There is no reason for us to spend time fighting and debating things that won't really change anything if the other person changes their mind. To fight the belief in something if that person's belief will do you no harm. Okay. Anyway, going on from there, I want to remind you about the Member Support Brigade. You can help support the show. Just go to the survivalpodcast.com and click on Members to learn more. And I want to let you know that Patrick Rohrman of MT Knives has a new program very similar to my MSB. It's called MT Knives Private Reserve. He's gone out and found some of his own discounters. He also is giving discount on his knives and his products. 
and uh, you get a free copy of Beyond Razor Sharp on DVD. That sells for $21. So right there, that's a, a good piece of a, of a membership in Empty Nice Private Reserve. He came to me and said, would, would I be interested in having him do a discount on his program in my program? I said, sure. So he gives 40% off. That makes your first year of his program $30, bucks, and you get the... You get the uh, the Beyond Razor Sharp video for for that for twenty one, so it's like nine bucks. So it's a pretty good deal. And I'll tell you the cool thing about it: Patrick's gone out and gotten some discounters that I don't have. In fact, every discounter he has is somebody I don't have. So it's it's kind of like an expansion to the MSB. And for some of you guys that aren't MSB members, you might go look at it and go, "This actually works better for me," and that's fine. I love Patrick and the work he does. I'm glad I was part of helping get him into what he's doing today, and uh, he makes the best knives on planet Earth. He really does. Check him out today at emptyknives.net, and you can find my post about uh, him joining my MSB in um, on the blog. Uh, it'll be the post directly after the post for this episode, 1737. All right. With that, I got one more thing before we get into businesses today, and it's from our uh, sponsor, Bob Wells, who has Bob Wells Plan of the Week for us once a month. This week we have the Santa Rosa Plum. Santa Rosa Plum is adaptable from Zone 5 to Zone 10. It has beautiful large red fruits and gold flesh. This is a big producer of bare sweet plums that are delicious when eaten fresh, cooked, or canned. The tree is vigorous and easy to grow, originally from Santa Rosa, California in 1906. It is heat tolerant, ripens in mid-July, and is self-fruitful. Bob Wells specializes in edible landscape, including fruit, ber fruit trees, berry plants, nut trees, as well as hard-to-find specialty fruit trees. You can find this plant more at bobwellsnursery.com. I'll say a little bit of extra on this. I have a saying, if it grows at my place, it will probably grow anywhere, with climate extremes being the exception. If it's something you can't handle zone 3 in your zone 3 and you freeze is that cold, then, then that's the exception. But assuming that the plant would grow in your climate zone, If it grows here, it will grow where you are. It doesn't get much tougher than the limestone flat that I sit on top of. I have not yet gotten any fruit from the Santa Rosa plums that I planted, but they were only planted a year ago. They have done very well, though. They have grown, they've put good growth on. Uh, they've scaffolded nicely. They've flowered out nicely. They look healthy. So this is a tough tree. If it survives here, it'll survive for you. Santa Rosa plum might be something you want to consider uh, adding to your efforts to build more self-sufficiency into your land. Again, you can find the plant at Bob Wells Nursery. And hey, MSB, 10% off all purchases from Bob Wells Nursery. All right, so let's get into the uh, the main topic then. And you'll have to excuse my voice still. Um, still recovering from the weekend workshop, and I think I have a bit of an, something is in the air allergy-wise. I don't get really bad allergies, but I usually get some a little bit right up at the beginning of spring, and spring has sprung early this year with this very mild winter we have in the south. So I'll apologize for that, but I'll do my best for you. I, again, I want to talk about starting businesses today, and I want to talk about you know a little bit about the why and how this is a survival topic. TSP started out right from the beginning teaching you not just how to survive the end of the world or even just disasters, but to survive life. Because so many people, they don't die, but by the time they're in their 60s or 70s, they're completely miserable, they have nothing, they're living hand-to-mouth, uh, they're one bounced Social Security check away from eating out of pet food cans. And... Many of those people are not people that if you would have looked at them 30 or 40 years before that, you would have thought that's where they were going to end up. But they do. And every day we hear about the plight of the elderly. And, and that's just one example of why financial concepts are important if you want to survive life in a way that's, that's worth living. 
if you want to survive in, the, in this world today, you also want to survive from a standpoint of you want the things that you want most in your life to continue to be there. The number one thing that destroys marriages when it comes down to it, folks, is financial stress. You can, you can cite things like infidelity, and it's almost always the case, though, that when you find a marriage where infidelity happens, it's one of two things. It's one, apparent, one, one uh, partner basically abandons the other and is, is adulterous with activity, not necessarily with another person. They feel left alone, and then that person seeks out somebody to make themselves feel whole. Uh, but the other is financial stress. Is financial stress. It's, it's stressful, and they get to where they don't like each other because they each see each other as part of the stress, and people find comfort in the arms of another person who might make it okay. In uh, direct financial stress destroys marriages. It A lot of the things that people think they end up divorced over are because of financial stress. If you took the financial stress away, the problems wouldn't be anywhere near as bad as they are. You could tell a person is financially stressed, they look miserable. I know people. You know, they look happy one second, but as soon as they're they're off, you know, they're not on, you know what I mean? Like when you're on like as an actor or something, like as soon as like the the group is not around them anymore and they they pick up their cell phone or look at something, they just look miserable. They look miserable. And you know, it's connected to this. So there's so much that we want to achieve in life that means we need to win with money. You know, money is not bad. Profit is not bad. Success is not bad. But yet many people are the type of people that I say, why do you hate money? And they'll say, what? I don't hate money. And I'll, I'll just like people that are in business even, I'll be like, here's five ways you're leaving money on the table right now in your business. Why do you hate money? And they'll say, well, I didn't realize that. Okay, well, now you do. Go fix it. And it, it's amazing to me how many people live their lives with an almost loathing hatred of money, and then wonder why they're broke all the time. But let me tell you some things you cannot do if you ever want to have money. You cannot look at wealthy people who are successful and be envious, and you cannot look at them and think, oh, they had it easy, or oh, they, 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 they bought their way to the top, or anything negative. I mean, there's rich people who are assholes, but there's plenty of poor people who are assholes. There's plenty of rich people who are genuine salt of the earth, would give you the shirt off their back to help you people, and there's plenty of poor people that are the same way. We can't judge people based on their level of success financially as individuals. We need to judge them as individuals regardless of their success financially. And then if we're going to emulate something they're doing financially, then they better be successful at that. But there's far too much class warfare. There's far too much. And even the people that, you know, I vote Republican and I, I don't have a problem with big business. You still see it when you talk to them and they talk about somebody that they went to high school with. It's now like must be nice or whatever. My wife would see it at work for stupid shit. Like she would go to go to the office and we might have steak the night before and she'd take a big old thick piece of ribeye or something in for lunch. And the, the girls that worked with her would say stuff like, well, Jack must be doing really good, almost a little condescendingly that she's able to eat like that. Well, the interesting thing was, this was a piece of a steak from the night before, and that piece, might she might have four bucks into that piece of meat, right? And these girls were then going downstairs to buy junk food for six, seven, eight bucks. So they were actually spending more, but they were envious because the quality was better because... She, we were willing to cook our own food and bring it in. And, and those, those people will never have money unless they change that outlook. 
So I, I just wanted to start with that because if you want wealth in your life, you need to stop repelling it. And I believe part of this is as a deist that the universe is 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 energy. That our our galaxies down to the fibers of our being are actually electric. That the whole thing is electricity, and electricity follows rules and. Electricity creates magnetism, and magnetism both attracts and repels based on how it's tuned and what it's tuned to. Now, this isn't the BS, you know, law of attraction that if you just believe in your heart really, really deeply, that money will come to you. But what 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 the law of attraction actually does do is bring opportunities to you, and it also can repel opportunities. And if you're using it properly, not only does it bring them to you. It brings your awareness to them, which is more actually powerful and less amazing. Okay, so if you, if you think I mean well, because I, I have this outlook, somebody will come to me and tell me something that will lead me to this realization that I could build a business on this or get an opportunity from that or what have you. That's not what I mean. That person, all things being equal. You know, unless you know you make a different decision and change your your probability of your future by going left when you were going to go right. But all things being equal, that person will still end up in front of you. The conversation will still take place, but your mind won't understand what was presented unless you're tuned to it. So, I want to get you tuned up a little bit before I give you your ten、uh, ideas. The first one is something that I think is. Evident and people talk about it, but people don't really believe it in their heart, and they don't they don't live like it's true. And that is, business is first the creation of value. To, to be in business and be successful, you have to actually create some sort of a value. And this is the antithesis of the class warfare that we're taught: rich people sit back, you know, smoke cigars at their desk with their feet up while everybody else works. The people that actually build a business that maybe enables them to look like that's the life they live, because trust me, it ain't, had to create massive value to the point where they created something so valuable they could actually begin to employ other people to get it done. But whether you're a small-time person like my father was when I was a kid, who buys used tires and, and sorts through them, and then you know puts a price tag on them and sells them and. And sells a person a tire that will get them through their next inspection, or a tire that will get them through the next two years, depending on whatever they need. You're adding value because when when those people went to the regular tire store, all it was there is brand new tires that were really really expensive. There was no alternative. So he created value in doing that, and he created value in a lot of other ways for people. Like if you were a regular customer that could be trusted, he would give you credit. Without any kind of formal application, he would just say, "Okay, this is going to be eighty bucks." The guy's like, "I only got forty." If it's a guy that's bought them five or six times before, when are you going to have the other forty bucks next week? All right. And the guy buys gas all the time there and everything. Sure, just just pay me forty bucks now. Bring me forty bucks next week, and we'll call it a deal. Guy screws him. Never does business with him again. Only certain people qualify for that, but no one says a value add. That's a creation of value. And, and that's what you have to understand. In all the businesses I'm going to talk about today, instead of thinking, "Oh, that's a neat trick," or "Oh, that would be easy," you got to think, "This is a value creation." How? Because the important thing to understand when I put a business out, I get people to start critiquing it. Well, you haven't thought about this, and what about that? I haven't. I haven't. And, and you're talking yourself out of it before you give it a shot. If you're not interested in it, don't do it. But all of these critiques, 
this is where the rubber meets the road. You have to start adjusting as you go, but you got to get in the game. Right? If you want to hit a baseball, you've got to stand behind the plate and take a pitch. And even if you strike out, you will never, ever, ever make contact with the ball from the dugout. And that's what so many people are doing when they're critiquing other people's shit. They're not stepping up behind the plate. They're trying to sound smart, but they don't do anything. When you do in business, you have to think first, how do I create value? And once you understand how you create value, then your marketing becomes easy because all you do is market how you create value. You tell a story about how your value creation is done. And then you transfer the belief in that value to a prospective customer. And once that belief is transferred, if they have the ability to do business with you, they do it. It's a very, very simple process. Sales, people write books on sales that are you know, 400, 500 pages long, all kinds of clever crap and little tips and techniques. But I just told you everything you need to know about the sales process. You were born being able to sell. You want to see sales? Watch a five-year-old get something from his grandmother. They are, you know, they could use a little maturity and a little more sophistication, but in the end, the process is identical. So why can't people sell? Because we built, we beat it out of them. Don't take money from from your grandma. Don't 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 take nice things from the the people we went to meet. Don't ask for things unless somebody's, you know, unless you're supposed to, right? Bull. Then you tell this kid, you know, when he's getting older, oh, just go ask the girl on a date. Oh, just go get yourself into college. Oh, just go get a job interview. You've conditioned them his whole life to not ask for shit from people, to not ask for money, to not ask for anything of value. So businesses start with the creation of that value and then telling people about the creation of that value in a way that they'll understand and then asking them to return value to you in exchange. A mutually beneficial relationship. Nobody wins. Both parties win when business is done right. The next thing is, follow your passion. is the best advice there is in business. I don't care who shits on it. I don't care what big-name billionaire who got where he is by following his passion shits on your idea because it's just a passionate idea. I don't care what somebody like Mark Cuban says because Mark Cuban is a billionaire because he followed his passion. Because without AudioNet that became broadcast that sold for billions of dollars to Yahoo, Mark Cuban ain't done shit that's generated a billion dollars since. Okay? Not even owning the Dallas Mavericks and winning a championship generates a billion dollars. He generated a billion dollars the only time in his life by following his passion. How? His passion was basketball. And he wanted to be able to listen to basketball here in Texas. And he wanted to listen to, like, Indiana play. So he figured out how to put audio on the Internet. That was AudioNet. It became Broadcast.com. People crap on that today because Yahoo bought it and screwed it up. But the reason that that company was successful is they sold value. They had people. I I built designs for their uh, data center down in Dallas. And I walked in that building many, many times and listened to people on the phone conveying value. They would call station managers of radio stations all over the country and say, we can have your radio station online tomorrow if you want to get set up. Now, every radio station does that today. They did it first. And Yahoo would own that business if they weren't stupid. Instead, they ruined it. But he created value by following his passion. $4 billion worth of value. And when somebody got a hold of it they didn't understand the passion behind it, they ruined it. So like the, the, the most famous person I know that craps on follow your passion today followed his passion. That's Mark Cuban. 
So follow your passion. Because the stuff that I'm going to give you today, you'll be able to back any niche into any of these, these types of things if you really think about how. Um, next, I said I'm going to give you 10 businesses to start today for a very low investment. Um, okay, so sometimes people think that's free. People want to do everything on free website design software and shit like that. They don't want to spend any money on anything. You know, they don't want to pay somebody to make them a decent logo or whatever. Spending about $500 to $2,000 to start a business is a very small investment. This is the numbers I'm talking about today. And there's nothing wrong with getting just the very basics you need for a few hundred dollars and turning a little bit of a profit, but you better be putting that right back into the business to the point where you at least have a good-looking website. Even if it's a five-page online brochure, it better when somebody, you know, you give somebody your business card or whatever and they pull it up, they better feel like this is a real company. A good-looking, well-made logo, not some fuzzy shit that some kid made for you on some cheap-ass secondary software or you try to fabricate for yourself. Pay somebody to make a good-looking logo. And don't get don't get tied up. I have people all the time. I have three logos to choose from. Which one do you like? I don't give a damn. I don't care. I just want it to look good enough. Right? Now, if you build the right logo, you can present your entire business from your logo. A logo and a strap line, you could sit down in five minutes and go just use it like a PowerPoint, just your logo. And if you want to get that sophisticated, fine. You don't have time for that shit right now, though. Get something that looks decent. Get a decent masthead footer for the site. Make sure you're able to do your own updates to it so you don't rely on somebody. Get it up, get it done. So that that's important, those things. You know, spend money on your business cards. Don't get the super cheap ones from Vistaprint. Get the ones on better stock that give a good impression. Things like that. If you're certain businesses, get some T-shirts made up. Put $100 bucks into T-shirts. Good-looking T-shirts. Black and gold always looks good. It's just one example. It's not the only color scheme, but black and gold looks good. Really good. And it looks professional. That's what a Steelers use, okay? I'm just kidding there, but it is. It's a, it's a great color schematic. Not necessarily for your branding, but for your clothing, if you're going to go that route. Um, so spending some money is, 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 is a reality. You know, hosting, good God, you can get hosting on HostGator for like five bucks a month or something like that. There's no reason to use free hosting. None. And people start worrying about well, how much bandwidth, whatever. You're starting a small business. Unless you're going to go into content creation like I do with podcasts or something like that, it, it doesn't matter. If you ever get to a problem where you have too much traffic to your website, it's a self-correcting problem. You can just buy more space. So don't worry about stuff like that. But get it looking good. And don't be afraid to invest. Because some of the stuff I'm going to tell you today, you could do with almost no investment. And some, you're going to have to make an investment in some material or insurances or things like that. So let's start with 10 small businesses you could start with very small investments. I'm actually doing one right now. I don't know that I'll take it to a business because i got enough going on. Uh, but I'll probably take it to a product, which is a business. Okay, I'm doing Meads of the Week on YouTube. Every week, I present new meads that I've made that week. I talk about meads that I've made the prior week, what worked, what didn't work. I talk about little products. In every video, I have a little note section. And anything that I've bought or used that week that people might want to find, there's a little link to Amazon. Um, you might think because I do the Survival Podcast, if I put something out like Meads of the Week, it would be this massive success. Videos get about 3,000 views. Right Over a week or two, they get about 3,000 views. I, I know that it'll build up over time. I'm actually doing it as part of a wide net strategy for Survival Podcast. It's yet Because I've got people watching it that have no idea what Survival Podcast is, but I hit them with a commercial at the end. So this is a function stack there. But imagine you were just doing it for that. 
So these are things that when you join groups on like Facebook and other forums and stuff, and you start a project like this, as long as you're contributing other things to the group, advice, questions, helping other people, if once a week you say, here's my latest video, nobody like, oh, you're a spammer, go away. Everybody's fine with it. So you can find all these ready markets to start bringing people in. I'm not telling you to do a mead videos, okay? Just in case you're thinking that. This is what I'm doing. This is a model. Brian Black did this to build up ITS Tactical, though I didn't realize it till today when I put this out as a business model that, that, that I was actually doing what he did because he never really did what I told him to do years ago with it. He did not of the week. It was a regular piece of content. It helped build the ITS blog into the success that it is. I said at the end of the 52nd week, you do 52 knots of the week, take all the video you've already made, spin it onto a DVD, and sell it. He's like, why would people buy it when it's already on YouTube? Because they will. And because it costs very little to have a drop ship arrangement to do something like that. Because people buy it for their friends and friends of friends and all Boy Scout troops and everything else, right? So my idea for Meads of the Week, same principle, every week there's a new Mead or two or three, is I'm going to put out a small book at the end of the year, or actually the beginning of 2017. It's going to be called The Year of Mead. The Year of Mead. It's probably something that I'll be able to take to someone like Chelsea Green or something like that and actually get published as a proper book. Then I've got a royalty income. And that book can be sold to all kinds of people that never saw the video series, but is a 52-week infomercial for the people that do. It's a 52-week infomercial for people to do. By the end of that, they're hooked. They're, they have, you have super fans in them, and they want a copy. And they'll buy a copy just to say, you know what, thank you for a year like that. And it'll be the process, the components, everything in there. And, of course, it'll be an electronic copy as well. And I'm going to set it up. If I do set up with a publisher, get this. If you buy the hard copy, there'll be a code in it to go to a website and get a list of all the links. that go. Basically get an electronic copy with links. So every product and, and component that you would ever need is available on Amazon with a few exceptions. So an embedded Amazon affiliate link. So that's the back of the book technology from 1970s. Right? But so all this of the week model is, is go out and find something that you can break into weekly segments, put it into weekly segments, and monetize it at the end of the year. And monetize it a little bit along the way. What I was getting at, though, is, okay, so I got 150,000 people listen to this. You'd think by launching Meads of the Week, I'd have like 100,000 viewers. And people would say, see, it's easy for him. No, I get about 3,000 views to a video. Not everybody that listens to this show gives a damn about making mead. They really don't. And not everybody that gives a damn about making mead has time to go watch another video about making mead. I'm looking for people that want to do that. So I get a little springboard there. But with only 3,000 people, our income from Amazon affiliate links embedded in the notes of those videos for the month of February, we're 23 days in, is a bit over $200. Remember I said $200 a month invested into your retirement that you wouldn't otherwise have? I'm just saying. And do you know what Meads of the Week does? When I buy honey, it becomes deductible. Because I'm using it as a prop for my business. I'm using it to create reviews. I'm using it to sell other products. So I get to write off my production of mead. Now, it'll be up to my CPA how much of that really should be written off, but some portion of it will be. 
years and years ago, I made a website about reviewing wines, and I bought a bottle of wine a week, posted a review on it, and deducted the price of the bottles of wine. Everything was kosher, made sure with a CPA. Always do that. But you take this model now, and you make a little money along the way, and you use it to launch a video or book or membership or some sort of project at the end of that year. You've built up an incredible amount of affinity. I mean, look at the videos I'm doing. They're 8 to 15 minutes long. All in, I'm under an hour for every video. So it's an hour a week. Now, I will be honest, it is easier having some level of a following. But you can build a following in anything. Again, use these groups. And I'll talk about some other really cool marketing tactics at the end. But that's one. The next one I want to talk about is any kind of a weekly delivery business with a value add to it. So a, a classic one that I see working for people right now is people that want to eat healthier. They want natural, organic, locally produced, etc. foods. And what I see people doing successfully, I think almost every person I've seen doing it is having success. And we see people all the time because they're coming to us and they're asking us for product that we can't give them. They want to buy eggs from us. It's like, we want to add eggs to our, you know, dude, I'm sorry, I sell all my eggs. We could take a bunch and we would want them at a little bit. No, no, you're not getting them at less of a price because they're all sold already. I'm sorry, I can't help you. But but the fact that these people are looking for product, you're not looking for a product like that when you don't already have a customer base out there. So the way most of these work is a person will put together a program and put together a catalog of foods, and then they'll use group by capability to source these foods. And each week, they'll just drive around all their customers. The last lady I saw doing it uses like $7.50 big Rubbermaid bins. And she had all this stuff in there from several different local stores, some stuff that was shipped in in bulk, all divided up to everybody's share. There was multiple share prices you could buy in, like a, a quarter share, a half share, or a full share, that type of thing. And uh, you got your stuff every week. And I said, how's it going? She goes, pays the bills. How'd you get into it? I just thought of it one day. Just started talking to people. I was amazed at how many people were interested. Where'd you get most of your customers? PTA meeting. What? PTA meeting. Yeah, like I got like four or five from the PTA meeting. Oh, that's how many do you have? She's like 80. You got four. Well, you see, they all are the people that talk to other people. And when they showed their friends and family and whatever, then I got them too. Really? See, this is why I today look at things like this. If I lost everything, I'd pick up one of these models and in a couple of months I'd be back to at least you know, making a living. Because it's not hard. You've been convinced that it's hard. Now, it's not easy either. We'll get to that at the end. There's a difficulty to it. But in the end, it's simple because it's things you can do. And you'll figure it out as you go. So you could do that with food, but there's... You know, I don't want to keep giving you all the things to do. I want you to be able to say to yourself, okay, what am I most passionate about? What do I know about? What do I know a little bit about? But over a month, if, if I knew I was going to do something with it, I could become a maniac at, at, at assembling information about it. You know, I could read in a month, I could read 20 books on the subject and do four or five projects to prove out my theories or whatever they are, go to classes, whatever it is. What would I like if I could spend a month or two Just fully learning about something to the point where anybody that I spoke to would think, man, this guy, this gal is an expert on this subject. 
I would be in heaven if I had 60 days to devote my life to this. And if it takes 120 because you have to go half speed because you have a job, fine. But find that passion and start assimilating the knowledge and the applicable knowledge to something. And there's probably something you could figure out that you could put together basically your own route sales gig. You know, there's people that work for like Snap-on Tools. They go to all the job sites. They bring tools with them, yada, yada, yada. Mechanics replace their tools and all. That's a pretty tough nut to crack because there's big mega companies like Snap-on in that business. And you got to travel long distances to make that happen. But surely there's something that people need on a regular basis that you could be the provider of. And maybe whatever you're passionate about doesn't fit that. Then you find a different model. See, instead of see, if you like that model I just gave you, but you're really into something that doesn't work for that model, then find a mo don't do that model. Find a different model. I'm going to give you a bunch of models today. The next one is the niche service business. So I, I'm so frustrated with my son for not taking it seriously and building a business in it because I set him up with everything he needed. I put I put the thousand bucks in to make him look professional, etc. And he just didn't do it. But above-ground pools. We've owned three above-ground pools now. I don't like to service my pool. I know how, but I don't want to. It's one more damn thing to do. And most people will service the pool for about 30 bucks a week. So it's 120 a month in the summer. It's 60 bucks a month otherwise. If you have a good income, and the people that... This is going to understand something. The people you're looking for as, as customers in a business have good incomes. Right, so that they're willing to pay you rather than do it themselves, especially in a service business. So at that price, I look at it this way and go, if I spend a couple hours a week jacking around on my pool versus giving somebody 30 bucks or 35 bucks, whatever it's going to be, those couple hours could have been spent making far more than that $30. That's how I make that change in my head. Right? If, if I can't make $30 in two hours, I'm cleaning my own pool. If I can make $100 in two hours and I pay somebody... $30 to do my pool so that when I actually have free time, I can float my ass in it and drink a beer. That's what I'm going to do. Well, above-ground pools are so hard to find somebody to service. And if you live in a reasonably high-populated area with reasonable income where people have pools, and if you want to know how many above-ground pools are in your area, go to Google, go to Maps, look up your neighborhoods, switch to Satellite View, and start checking them out. It's pretty easy to tell an above-ground from a below-ground pool. All right, so... I'm going to do, I'm going to do some, another one before I come back to the pools because I want you to realize it's a model. The other one is beekeeping. My bee uh, mentor, Jason, uh, really great guy. I've talked to him about this. He believes this business is viable, but it's not viable for him. He's a paramedic. He makes good money as a paramedic. He does bee removals. He has a crap ton of highs, so he does uh, honey as well. And he makes so much money doing removals He can't see taking the time that he has as a part-time beekeeper and applying it to this model. But he's talked to his kids, and of course your kids never listen to you, but I believe that anybody with a reasonable ability at keeping bees could do very well with the following model. I'll sell you anywhere from one to five hives. I would pick five in Texas because when you go to six, you have to register, as you register your apiary. That just keeps all of the... And I'll do it if you really want to if, as a service provider, but one to five hives. And I really recommend you go with at least two. I'll sell you the hives. I'll set them up for you, but you own them. Why? They're your hives now. It's not my liability anymore. 
right? So you have to have a good lawyer go over your contract for this, and I advise that for any and all businesses, but you want to make sure if somebody gets stung, has an allergic reaction or whatever, they were their bees, it's not your fault, it's not your problem, it's just the way it works. And if somebody said, we want to do this anyway, but we have a family member with an allergic reaction to bees, I would say, I'm sorry, I can't take you as a client, I'm not touching this. And I would have them sign a document that say that, that to their knowledge, no one in their home is allergic to bee stings. So that's a liability. Once that's done, and you're protected liability-wise, this is how it works. Put the bees on your property. Once a month, I come to a service call. I check the bees. I make sure that they're, they're, they're happy, they're healthy, they're not diseased. Uh, if there's any kind of problems, I correct them. Uh, at the end of the, I put a super box on the hive when it's ready. Um, I set up, I set up the situation so you can feed your bees easily. I make sure they're getting enough feed when I'm there. I tell you anything you need to be doing in the three weeks that I'm not there. But you don't have to suit up. You don't have to pull hives apart. You just have bees. At the end of the season, I do your honey extraction. I take 20% of the honey or 30% or whatever number you figure out works. You get the balance plus you're paying me all year round. Every time your hives need to be divided, I'm dividing bees and I'm selling them to a new customer. Then I'm going to take, think about this, I'm going to take that 20% that I'm going to have coming in for maybe 100 customers, because that would be a very, once you got up to 100 customers, you'd be very viable in this business. So I have 100 customers and I'm going to blend that 20% into all their honey. I'm going to formulate a brand called, if I lived here, DFW Backyard Honey. I'm going to tell the story. I'm going to sell it to all the people that are worried about local honey for local allergies. And instead of trying to sell it as buckwheat honey or clover honey or wildflower honey, I'm going, to, I'm going to sell the fact that it's blended from all of these different hives that I maintain. And I'm going to sell that honey at a premium. I'm going to sell it at a double market rate. And you watch me sell every flipping drop if I'm in an anywhere near positive economy. Going back to the pools, how do you get business for that? Okay, number one, you go to all the pool supply stores. You try to find the pool supply store in your neighborhood that's a brand where there's like multiple ones. Here it's called Bonnie and Clyde's. And then you give them your loyalty as long as they give you referrals. You always buy your chemicals from them uh, and you tell them that. You print up a brochure that talks about maintenance of a pool and cleaning, etc. And every single time a person walks in and is interested in buying a pool but is concerned with maintenance, they're going to pick up your piece of paper and hand it to them. And say, you know, if you don't want to maintain your pool, uh, we have a guy that does it. The next thing you're going to do is that same piece of paper that's going to sell all of the wonderful things about how you maintain a pool with pricing and everything on it. You're going to sit your ass down on Google Earth. You're going to look up every neighborhood in your area of high density. You're going to mark out and make a list of all the addresses that you can just look down and see above ground pools in their backyard. You're going to go out and you're going to do direct sales calls. You're going to knock on the door. I know it's scary. It's not like you, you know, kids were Boy Scouts or whatever. You sold candy. Everybody was happy to see you. But you're going to wear your nice shirt. You're going to walk up and say, hi, I've noticed you have an above-ground pool. Now, you probably didn't notice it because you can't see it, but that doesn't really startle anybody. I am a professional that, that cleans and services above-ground pools. I know finding someone to do that in, in the area is kind of difficult. That's why I've gone into it. I have a rate sheet here of the services I provide. I can either do weekly or bi-weekly calls. I'm local to the area. I do, I do a good job. Here's also on my sheet some people that give me good recommendations. This is my number. This is my website. If you'd like to know more, you can check that out or call me. And I would be happy to service your pool for you. And then shut up. 
Don't walk away. But you've pretty much said you're done. This is a rule in sales. When you're done, don't say shit. Let the person respond. The person's going to do one of three things and only one of three things. I don't care. Bam. The door shuts in your face. It's important that that happens as soon as possible so you can stop being afraid of it. The first time it does, this is for any kind of sales you're doing this way. Look at yourself. You won't be bleeding. You're not dead. You're still breathing. Go do it again. For every five no's, you get a yes. Okay? So you need lots of no's fast. The other option is they're going to say, well, thank you very much. We'll keep you in mind, and we'll check this out, and they'll shut the door. That person is not the most likely person to ever call you and say they want you to, but there's going to be some portion of them that will. They really will, because what will happen is they'll get to a point where they're tired of it, where their pool's starting to turn green because they don't stay on the maintenance like they should or whatever, and they'll be like, hey, that guy said, get him over here and get and a customer, Okay. Um, and then the third, this is the one, the, the one you're going to get the most business from, people that do this. They're going to ask you a question. Even if it says right on there, $30, $35, whatever, how much is it? Well, it's, it's 30 and don't be like, oh, stupid, it's 30 Oh, it's 30 bucks, and here's what it includes, even though it says right on the sheet what it includes. You know, I, I, I provide base chemicals unless some kind of major thing. I do weekly water testing. If something's out of whack, I take it down to Bonnie and Clyde's where you probably bought your pool. And I have them do an analysis of it, and I take corrective action for you. There's a few things that you need to do for me. When the pool gets low, you add water to it, whatever it is that you want them to do. I skim it. I do this. I do that. And uh, I can set you up. Right now, I have appointments for the rest of the week. But I can start as early as Monday if you'd like me to. You've asked for the order. See? Ask for money. Sometimes people say yes. Why do you hate money? That's why I say so many people. Why don't you ask for business? Right? And if the person says, well, I don't know if I'm ready right now. Well, there's my information. You can call me. Um, and and ha have a great day. Didn't mean to disturb your afternoon. Go away. Now you're a nice guy. You haven't caused any trouble. You haven't been pushy. You haven't been shovy. You've either handed them a piece of paper and walked away, or you have answered their questions and their concerns. You've offered your service. They've said yes. They've said no. If they say yes, you say great. I'll be here, boom, at this time. Does that work for you? How do I pay? I take my payments with. You should have some type of electronic payments you take on your phone. Okay? Or I take a check, you know, or whatever it is you want to do. But have know the answer to how do they actually do business with you and take their money. Um, so that's another one. Uh, the niche service business. Next, um, I think another business along these lines that actually is uh, really viable uh, Just if you live in a place with a reasonable, again, affluent population and high-density suburbs. And that is a business that specializes in, like, pressure wash and staining and painting of things like fences and houses and decks and stuff like that. And what I would do is I would set up with a nice little trailer. I mean, I'd like a $500 tractor supply trailer. I'd get a really good pressure washer. And all the equipment that you need to carry on that trailer, you could probably carry all that in the back of a pickup. It all depends on how big you want to go how fast. And I would get some nice magnetic signs that go right on the door of the pickup that can come off when you don't want your pickup looking like that. Uh, or if, you, you know, if you're on a vehicle that's not a pickup, you can, you can tow a little trailer like this by just about any vehicle. You can do it with a Prius and say you're eco-friendly, whatever. Market what you have. Don't go out and buy a F-350 you know, to look like you're in business. Use what you have, market what you have in a business like this. 
And what you do is you just go around in the evenings when people are home from work, and, and, and you have your brochure, and you market what you do, et cetera. And when you say, well, you know, I clean driveways and stuff, and your driveways, I could clean a small spot so you can see what it would look like. When that person says, yes, you've got a, you've got a deal. I've, I've watched guys do this. The guy comes in, he sprays like about five, six square inches, and it, it, it looks like brand new. And then there's this like, clean spot right at the edge of their driveway. The guy looks at the rest of his driveway and goes, how much? 25 bucks, 30, whatever it is. Yeah, do it. I'll go get the cash. Okay, here's, you know what, you take the cash, you do the job, you say, if you need your fence stained, if you need your fence uh, pressure washed, your deck, etc., anything like that, give me a call. If, if you don't have a deck or whatever, if you ever decide you want one, give me a call. I don't do that, but I know people who do. Now you become a broker. We'll get to that later. But, I mean, you can come up with other things that you would take this model to, right? The next one I want to cover today is totally different. Spin farming, which is what Curtis Stone does. You get Curtis Stone's book, uh, The Urban Farmer, and follow the blueprint and become a farmer. Now, I, I purposefully didn't put a lot of the agricultural stuff in today's show because we talk about it so often. And I use it as an example so often because I'm passionate about it. And I talk what I'm passionate about. Um, so I left out things like nurseries, which you could do. I left out things like a plant business, which you could do. I left a lot of stuff out. But spin farming is so useful because it is so low cost to get started. There's so many people that say, well, I want to be a farmer, but I need land. Well, that's a farm isn't land. This is a business lesson in of itself. The most successful farmers I know own very little of their own land. Their farm is their brand. Their farm is their portable infrastructure. And their farm is their market. That's their farm. So Joel Salatin has a really beautiful farm in Polyface Farms, but he's farming way more than that much land. And he's leasing that land. Now, doing that on a large scale is in some ways difficult. What Curtis is doing is he goes into neighborhoods. He finds places where people have a reasonable-sized backyard or front yard or whatever works and explains his business model to them. He puts in row crops, harvests local, sells local, And, you know, can turn six figures a year that way if he's really busting ass. Got so successful that he actually scaled back down. He was up to like four acres. I think he's at like two now. He had four or five people working for him almost full time. And he started with no real money. But dogged determination. Sells to restaurants, sells through farmer's markets, sells to high-end customers. It is, it is, it is, I'm not saying you should do it, but it works. So I guess my, my thought here, though, is... What else could you do that with? Do you need land? You don't need a lot of land. It can be done in a town. It can be done in a city. But you need more land than you have. But you could break it up in little pieces and put it on other people's property. I don't know. But ask yourself, what are you passionate about? If I gave you $5 million and said you're going to get also a check for half a million dollars for the rest of your life. You never have to work again. When you got done partying, traveling the world and all, and you said to yourself, you know, self, what do I want to do on a daily basis? What do I want the meaning of my life to be? Where would I work? What would I do? What industry? What niche? What thing? Okay, take that and see, does that fit this model? No. Then what model does it fit? Um, here's another completely different one. I've been on Brian Black about doing this because Brian at ITS Tactical, I know one of his goals one day is to own a tactical training school 
a, basically for for guns, right? So something along akin to like a front sight or something like that. And when he looked at it years ago, he's like, man, the expense before you even get land, before you even have a place, before you start investing in instructors and certificate, before any of that, just the insurance to run a school like not a range where people come and can't draw from a holster and stand there and shoot, but a, a real you know, school where you can do training for like forced entries, forced on forced engagement, realistic uh, uh, defense scenarios, things like that. The insurance is insane. So I said to him years ago, do it with Airsoft. You know, ah, I don't know, Airsoft, blah, it's a garbage. Kids playing on weekends, yeah, five million shots out of one gun. Okay, yeah, it doesn't have to be that way. There are realistic, properly functioning Airsoft replica guns of every popular firearm made in America today, the end. And just because the AR-15 can be loaded with 200 rounds in the 30-round banana magazine, right, does not mean that you have to do it. In your training, you can limit magazines to the capacity the weapon is actually capable of. You can draw from holsters, and if somebody gets shot, if you're wearing eye protection, you're not really going to be hurt bad, okay? The insurance is not super cheap, but it's much lower. And think what you could do if you actually got yourself like a cheap, run-down, piece-of-shit, old warehouse. You could create every scenario under the sun. You could even create scenarios with, okay, we can stop a pellet, an uh, airsoft pellet, with heavy cardboard or plywood. So we can mock things up that would stop bullets and put that there. But we can also mock things up with a frame and put paper in front of it because those pellets will penetrate through and hit somebody. So if a person's using cover, that's one thing, but if they're using concealment, even if they can't be seen, if they're hit through, they just learned a valuable lesson. We could do everything from force-on-force, hostage rescue, stuff that you could market to law enforcement, to five people sitting down at dinner and some guy kicks the front door of the house in, or 20 people in a restaurant, somebody comes in and starts shooting. And no one's going to die, and it's a much more safe environment for a big segment of the market that has apprehension and fear about guns. I'm not talking about war gaming and stuff like that with kids coming in and shooting at each other all the time. You know, like I just went and had my CO2 tank refilled. I found the paintball store that I was buying from has moved, and they didn't move that far. When I went down there, it's like they don't just have a store now. They have a, a place where people actually play. It was Sunday. There had to be 500 people playing paintball. So that's an opportunity that's out there too, right? That's a big market. But if you can bite a piece off of a market where people are not, so you're not really trying to take that piece of market, you're using that concept to expand to a new market. I think that a, a tactical training airsoft, I'm sure somebody's doing it. I'm somebody like, it's already being done. Yeah, well, unless it's being done in your backyard, that doesn't matter shit to you. Okay, and I would mark it as the most realistic training you can get without being shot. That would actually be the tagline. You know, uh, Jim Bob's tactical airsoft training, the most realistic training you can get without being hit by a bullet. Note, pellets, pellets sting. <laughs> Real feedback. And I mean, I would hire instructors and I would do special clinics with like Navy SEAL instructors and things like that. But I would hire, I would run, dip, you know, like you have a standard like 
thing that's always available. But I would run like these clinics, and they wouldn't always be with Navy SEALs. They really wouldn't. I'd look for people who got basic training, got into a situation, had to use their weapon, really thought their life was in danger, not professional instructors, come in and recreate the scenarios that really happened. There's so much that could be done with this. You could build an entire brand around this, and you could end up with, with schools in multiple locations. And because it's all airsoft, traveling as a, a, a unit, like I'll come here and provide this like high-end training for you, not that hard to do. Don't have to, you know, you know, make special arrangements with the airlines to transport a bunch of guns. Lightweight equipment, easy to move around, uh, easy to source. People that want to own their own, you just tell them, hey, buy this stuff. Here, I'll bring the other stuff you don't have. We're ready to roll. Going totally different way again. I want to go as diverse as I can today to show you how much opportunity is out there. How about a nature walk specialist? Yes, I'm serious, a nature walk specialist. So how would that work? Um, this assumes you live somewhere with a good tourist market, uh, with an interesting trail situation, you know, where you have like either hiking trails or even like historic trails through town or something like that. And basically, you become a professional tour guide. But this is how you make this work. You find things that people never see. So if you have a trail that is, let's say, a three-mile trail, when people take that walk, generally what they do is they walk it and they're done. People generally try to walk trails that have loot backs in them and things like that. When they're taking like short trips, we're not talking about professional backpackers here. We're talking about a guy with two kids, about 10 and 11 years old, and a wife, and they're in the Smoky Mountain National Parks, and there's trails, and they want to go for a walk in the woods. Okay? That's what we're talking about. They can only go so far. Kids' legs get tired, things like that. They're not backpackers. And what they generally don't end up doing is hiking like a through trail that's a couple, three, four miles. Because when you get to the end of it, you got to turn around and come back. Well... What you can do, since you are a second party with a second vehicle, is you'll meet them at a certain place, they'll leave their vehicle there, or you'll pick them up and they leave their vehicle there, and then you'll drive them to the trailhead, and then when you get there, they give you a ride back to your vehicle. So that opens up a whole new opportunity, but that's not what it's really about. What you have to do is you have to find along that trail 20 or 30 things that everybody misses. And sometimes it's a little bit off the trail. Sometimes, like I know one place, for instance, uh, on the on the Appalachian Trail up as you move into the White Mountains, where there's these huge white cliffs. And when you get out to the edge of those cliffs, it's just unbelievable, absolutely unbelievable. It's only, oh God, a hundred yards off the main trail, but you really got to know where it is to get to them. That's just one example. And I would then take and I would build this website and I would make a little picture or a big picture or a little video or whatever works best for the scenario about these 20 or 30 points and what makes them so amazing. And I, I like, I'd have like a thing with like five that have like a, like, a, like a hood over them or something, like a covered box or something with a question mark. Five you'll never know unless you take a walk with me, something like that. And I would, I would market that, that you basically get in touch with me, tell me when you're going to be in town, we set a date, I, you know, I tell you where to meet me, and I take you on this walk. 
And this could be done, you know, in a town that has a rich history just around town. That might be just put the people in the vehicle, drive around, tell them about things that they would never know about or see otherwise. And you could do this so many ways. This could be a natural thing. This could be a boat tour type thing. Uh, there's, you know, then there's a whole, you know, are you a commercial captain thing? But there's so many ways that you could market this type of a business that, again, follow your passion. And is this going to be something that, you know, a hundred people can do in the same backyard? No, but you'll probably find that no one's really even trying. So that's another one. And again, think about the model. The model is you're marketing to people that are in town for a short while and you're guiding them through something they would not be able to find or make the most efficient use of without you. So that's another one. Right up with that would be something like being a fishing guide. But I think like the way to be a fishing guide in, in many instances is not depending on the tourist market. Uh, this area here alone, Dallas-Fort Worth, has lakes everywhere. There's great fishing all over the place. And there's fishing guides all over the place. Here's the good news. None of them can market themselves worth a shit. They all get business the same way. They're on a couple forums, and they fight each other, and they hate each other. And when someone moves onto their lake, they hate them. I've heard of people getting sugar poured in gas tanks, uh, having, you know, either like maliciously would be like holes put in their trailer tires while their trailer's uh, parked. Or, you know, less maliciously, just having someone remove the valve stems on them so at least the, tr the tires aren't ruined. I've heard of all kinds of things like that, and I've, I've fished with many of them, and I've heard them talk shit about each other. And this is because they don't market the way they fish. And what I mean by that is, when I go out with a fishing guide, if we go to, like, his place that he always takes customers, and the fish just aren't hitting there that day, he says, since I know this lake, and I know patterns, they probably shift, or do they call a contact, and how they hitting over there, or whatever. And they move, and they go to the fish, if the fish don't come to them. You'd think they would naturally market the way they fish, but they don't. If I was going to be a fishing guide, I would join every chamber of commerce and business group uh, within, uh, let's say, an hour's drive of where I lived and operated. And I would go to all of them. I would be the only one there. I can tell you right now, I've never, ever run into a fishing guide at something like this. And I would want to talk to the people. You know, you network with everybody, you talk to everybody, you're cool with everybody. That's how you make those situations work. But the people I would want to talk to, my, my question to see if you're the kind of person I really want to do business with is, do you do client entertainment? Do you have people come in from out of town or do you, you know, have regular accounts that you call on that occasionally you take people to play golf, something like that? Take them to the bar, whatever. Is that like a thing you do? Oh, yeah, I do that. Oh, let me tell you what I do. I'm a fishing guide. No one takes their clients fishing. Everybody takes them to play golf. Some of your clients probably suck at golf. They only play because they feel obligated to. People like to fish. Here's how it works. You know, we set a date. I pick you guys up. I take care of everything. If you don't want to keep fish, we can just fish. We can just do sites. We can do whatever you want. But th that's my thing is I, is I specialize in this. Uh, I, I specialize. So I know how to take care of that type of clientele. You know, I'm not here uh, putting worms on, on, on hooks for kids or whatever. That's not my deal. I'm looking for higher-end clientele. I run a nice – but now you have to have a nice boat. You have to have a license. But my whole point there is here's a business you would look at in a lot of places say, that's saturated, man. And you could come into it and have more clients than most of the people already doing it tomorrow by knowing how to market it, which leads to my next business model for you. Be an independent sales manager, uh, really brokering stuff for others. 
So if you think to yourself, you know what? I really get what Jack's saying about this. You know, like go into chamber of commerce meetings and stuff like that, especially if you're like a guy you like to fish, you know, but you don't want to be a fishing guide. Right? You just don't want to. Um, but you like to fish and you know the sport well. And you're in business and you know networking well. You know exactly when I start talking about networking, a comp chamber meeting, or anything else like a business uh, mixer, anything like that, you know exactly what I'm talking about. You're good at it. Well, you could probably find four or five fishing guides in your area that are really, really the best, right? You might even spend the money and go out with them and be like, okay, this guy's off the list. This guy's on the list. This guy's a good guy, but his boat's shit, and it doesn't fit this type of client, right? And you eventually get your list. And then you go to the meetings, and you say, I represent fishing guides. And we set up these corporate outings and stuff like that. And then you just make a deal with your guides. I take X dollars for every client that I hand you. They'll be ready to go. They'll be completely pre-sold. All I'm going to do is confirm a date with you. Right? And if you're a little technical, you can say one of my services I provide to you for no cost is I set up on your website where people can book trips on your site. And then I just book the trips for my clients. I get a confirmation copy, whatever, and go from there. But see, then you don't stop there. See, in fact, I wouldn't even just start just with that. I would market myself as the guy that connects you and your clients for your corporate outings, your corporate events, your client entertainment, to the activities that no one ever thinks of or doesn't realize how to do or doesn't know who to use or what have you. I would, you know what, these guys like, some of these guys like to play paintball. I go down the street to this guy down here and go, like, are there premium times? Are there premium, like, at the top end, right? And I just... If I get no customers for him, I'll just drop him eventually. But it'll be in my portfolio. If nobody's interested, I'll, I'll just tell him, I'm sorry, it didn't work out. He didn't spend no money. I didn't spend no money. All right? I've just like made him an additional thing. But I'll tell you what would work. Because I did it all the time when I was in sales. I hate golf. 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 I think golf, I don't mean to offend you if you like golf, but I think golf is the stupidest game on planet Earth. The only good that's ever come from golf for me is I like playing mini golf with kids because they like to do it and it makes them happy. And Robin Williams' comedy bit on how the Scots, the Scots invented golf when they were drunk. That's it. So I didn't play golf. And I was a regional sales VP in the northeastern United States where everybody in my industry played golf. And I had to go entertain these clients that always were like, you know, want to play golf. But the truth was they were tired of playing golf. They had played enough golf. They had played golf every week. And they were even going and playing golf at times just because you had to, right? That was part of the deal. That was part of being in business. So what I did is I found in different places that I had clients, places you could go do sporting clays, right? It's like skeet shooting, except there's different stations, and they actually call it golf with a shotgun. So you have a low one here, you got double cross flyers there, whatever. A lot of these guys never shot a gun in their life. But if they were open to it, well, I'll take you. But I don't have a gun. You don't need a gun. Rental of the gun and ammo, everything is covered right there. As far as there's a safety briefing before you start, it'll be fine. We'll go out, we'll shoot, we'll have a good time. Afterwards, we'll have some beers. Maybe we'll put a, a, a dollar ahead on the on each station, uh, like a skins game, just like they already understand golf. And they loved it. They loved it. They loved it. They loved it. And the funny thing was, they didn't start using it themselves. They waited till I came back to take them again. 
And it was so simple. So I would add that if I was an independent broker in this niche, right? You know, I can set up sporting clays for you. I can set up, we can set up dinners. I'd be, I would go find the five best restaurants, the best of the best of the best, and say, I only work with these five. And I only work with them for this type of dinner. If you and one of your clients are going to just, just, you know what? I'll tell you the five, go to that, they'll take care of you, right? But if you want to have like a round table discussion where you have, like I used to do where I would be me, I'm the sales rep, uh, or a sales manager, I'd have my sales rep, I would have a consultant, I would have an architect, I would have a contractor and an engineer on a project. They were all, and we would go to some pretty fantastic places. But imagine there was just a guy I could call and say, yeah, I need to set something like that up when I'm in Boston next week. Oh, I got you covered where you have a level of care that when everybody sits down, you just don't even worry anymore, right? Everything's just taken care of. I would add that to what I would do. And I, and I, and I would go into these high-end business functions, and I would market myself that way. I'm the guy that comes up with stuff for you and your clients that you just don't have time to figure out yourself. I only work with the best. If anybody doesn't meet the standards of myself and my customers, I get rid of them. By the way, you don't pay me a penny. I have pre-arrangements made out with the with the provider. You pay the same price for your service that anybody else buying that service would pay. Guys, you could do that with anything. That you could do that with any niche. You could be a broker for any type of service or product industry that you wanted to. And it is as simple as that. Because I'm now the person that connects you to the business. I'm not even asking for your money. And there's, you know, there's some hurdles in how do you track business and make sure you don't have circumvention and stuff like that. But by paying the same price that they do publicly anyway, you mitigate circumvention. So as long as you have contact with your customer and control, we went here on there, you bill your providers. Uh, they don't want to pay you? I'm sorry, my list is short anyway. It can be shorter. I don't want to work with you either anymore because uh, it's not just important my clients get taken care of, but I'm dealing with an honest business. So off the list, I'll find somebody to replace you. Goodbye. See, there's none of this bullshit you'd have to deal with if you were employed by somebody. Oh, well, they've been around. No. You don't want to work with somebody, you don't work with them anymore. That's the whole point. The last one, pet sitting or mobile pet grooming or whatever. If you like animals, you want to work with animals, especially dogs. Dogs are cool. My friend Kathy from New Jersey, uh, I met her years and years ago. She had a pretty decent job. She started doing pet sitting a little bit, almost immediately said, I, I can't afford to work anymore. She pulls down a... I, a really good income in New Jersey as a pet sitter. And the way she got started, she just marketed herself as someone that loves animals. Now, you got to understand, this is somebody following their passion. This is who Kathy is. Kathy works with an organization that would do this. People would identify an animal being abused. And for whatever reason, the government wouldn't remove the animal. Her and her group were anarchists to the extreme, even though they didn't notice what they were, would go in and basically steal the animal, distract, whatever had to be done. Whatever had to be done to get the animal out of the abusive situation, they had a foster network that would foster the animal, and they'd find the animal a, a, a permanent home. It's mostly dogs that this applied to. When I asked her, I said, why do you do this? She said, someone has to take care of these dogs. She was dead sincere, too. It wasn't, wasn't anything ego-driven. She honestly just believed that, well, someone has to do this, and I'm willing to, so I will. So when she went into this business, there was no faking 
how much she cared about animals. And she said this is what happens with her customers. It takes one or two times, and that customer realizes there is no one that will care for my animals better than myself or this person. No one else, and it's done. Lifelong client. She has people that only use it for vacations, but she has people that, you know, they have a, there's wealthy people, right? And they have a dog, and the dog's home for eight hours a day, and they want somebody sometime, you know, in the middle of the day to go see the dog, make sure the dog's taken care of, put the dog out to poop and pee, bring the dog back in the house, pet the dog, make sure everything's okay, and, and just go on, and the dog's waiting for them when they come home. And, I mean, she just thinks like, you know, just, just doesn't want to call them. They're at work. Just was in. Mitzi's fine. She did her business, blah, blah, blah. Fed her this. Cleaned up the water dish because she made a mess again. Thank you, Kathy. Send next customer. High-touch service with technology that's dead simple technology. Anybody can send a text. People love text messages for confirmations of things because they don't have to talk to you. They don't have to do anything. They don't have to worry. Oh, it's done. It's out of my head now. Awesome. That's why you like text messages for like your stuff was delivered or PayPal says you just spent money. Because now you know if you spend money, even if somebody hacks your account, you're going to see it. You can take corrective action immediately. Or you did something, oh, it went through. Okay. You get a text from Amazon. Your stuff's going to be delivered tomorrow, right? You can provide that same level of service on a small level. It doesn't require any kind of automation. Mobile grooming. My wife's excited because she just found a mobile grooming service to come groom our two stinky-ass dogs. We'll bathe them, but the fur, the trimming, stuff like that, I mean, especially Max, man. And the thing is, I don't like to put him in the vehicle much anymore because he has hip problems and he's getting older. So because he has hip problems and he's getting older, um, it's actually valuable to me that someone would come here instead of me having to get him up into a truck or up into the SUV or whatever, take him to the vet, any more freak, you know, or the groomers, because we have him groomed at the vet here, and do that any more frequently than is absolutely necessary, like for his shots and checkups and stuff. So it's like less stressful for him, even though he likes the vehicle, he doesn't like to be at the vet. So that's a, a and, and if you take a dog that doesn't like to be at the vet to a groomer, they think they're at the vet. Right? They don't understand the difference, even if your vet and your groomers are different. So, and the time savings, the convenience, because to take the dog that you're groomed, even if you just drop them off and pick it up, you're into an hour by the time it's over with. What's well, an hour of my time worth? So they charge a little bit more. They come here, my dog is comfortable, he's happy, he's in his environment, he feels good about what's going on. I get to know the person there. For, I mean, so that's another business. It may require certain things to be able to do it with insurances and stuff like that, but it can be done if you want to. So so those are 10 businesses. And again, you could take the pet sitting or the mobile grooming and apply something other than pets to it. Please understand the model. But I want to throw a couple things at you real quick here from marketing, and I'm just going to hit each one really fast, but things that people don't get is marketing and sales platforms. Number one is Pinterest, and I didn't get Pinterest. And the reality is I don't need any more customers, so I'm not working real hard to find new customers. Uh, I'm doing what has always worked for me, and it's continuing to work. And the TSP business model doesn't really fit Pinterest that great. Uh, it's not like I put up a cool picture every day, but maybe I should. Maybe I should have somebody that makes me a cool meme every day to fit the theme of the show for that day. Maybe I should, right? And if I did, I would pin every single one of them. I wouldn't just put them on Facebook. I'd pin them. Here's why I played with this. I was like... How does this actually work? Because I just thought Pinterest was dumb. But when your customers use something, you use it too. So I said, well, what if I just set up a board for ducks and I put a bunch of duck pictures in there? 
I got like 40 followers in two days. Not because I'm Jack Spearco at the Survival Podcast. None of these people know who the hell that was. I stopped doing it. I stopped getting them. I did it again. They started showing up again just by being active. So I would pin my ass off if I was starting a new business. I'd be coming up with pictures just to pin them. But, I mean, if I was the nature walk guy, I'd be posting the daily sunset. Are you kidding me? The daily sunset. And just a picture of the sunset, and I would get the filters to make them look good in a digital camera. I would take one great picture every day of the sunset, and I would publish the picture in my blog with two or three sentences. The whole thing would take less than 15 minutes. And I would pin every one of those. And I would pin it to a board called Sunsets or something like that. And trust me, you're going to get business. right? Facebook. I, I would tell you that if I had it to do over again, I would have built the survival podcast component to Facebook as a, as a, like a forum uh, group, not as a fan page. I have over 100,000 members of the TSP Facebook fan page. I publish an episode, it gets seen by 1,300, 1,400 people in a day. I post something to the regenerative ag group with just, we just hit 10,000 members. That's awesome, by the way. And it, it, it's a flurry of activity. 40 comments, 15 shares, because it's an engagement. And it's, it's not just me engaging my audience, it's them engaging each other. So if I were starting a new business today and I wanted to build a Facebook presence, I would build it around um, a page, right? I would build it around uh, a group. That's the right word, a group. And I would and I would let go of total control, but as the founder, then I have a certain credibility with the majority of the members of the group. And I would give that to them as a value add. Now I would definitely put all my pictures and stuff like that and stories of my clients and success all in that group too. Right? And I wouldn't worry if somebody like was technically a competitor that was part of saying, Look what I'm doing over here. I mean, unless they're really hurting my business, there's room for everybody. That activity, that activity is critical. Um, YouTube. This is the number one problem with YouTube. People market their product. Don't market your product on YouTube. Market yourself. Market yourself. Be a subject matter expert. Teach people. Demonstrate. Show. And, and your product will naturally market itself through placement and things like that. Um, so many companies are sending people equipment to review and stuff, and it does get them business. But let's understand who has the power here. When um, so nothing fancy, one of the bigger YouTube guys, right? In firearms, when a company sends him a firearm or a product or something, like that, he reviews it, and they get a bit of business. They get the business in a burst, boom, and gone. Every time he does a new video and attracts two or three new people that like him, he retains that where the company sending him the stuff to review doesn't. And he's good at marketing himself, but not by saying, I'm nothing fancy, I'm awesome, right? Some people like him, some people don't. I could take him or leave him. It doesn't matter. So that's the other thing. If you're going to use YouTube, you got to realize that a whole shitload of people are not going to like you. That's okay. Delete their shit, ban them from your channel, keep doing your shit, you don't have time to screw with them. You don't. Right? If, if they don't like you, then they don't need to watch you. They don't need to pay attention to you. And I'm not talking about people like, you know, your lighting's a little off or whatever. Okay, well, maybe I can fix that. Maybe I can't. It is what it is. Or, oh, oh that's a good suggestion. What I'm talking about is people, you're stupid. You don't know anything. You think you're so delete. Ban. Gone. 
You don't want criticism. Go eat, Ben. You're right. It's not that I don't want criticism. I don't have time for criticism. I'm building something here. You're not. You're whining, bitching, pissing, and moaning. Goodbye. But but nothing fancy and all these like Wrangler Star and all these guys that have real presences on YouTube don't market themselves by talking about how great they are or why you should want to do business with them. When I say market yourself, I mean they are themselves and they convey information and they teach. They teach, they inform, and they entertain. There's a guy called Viper Keeper. Tremendously popular channel. I don't know if he's making any money on it. You've got to learn how to monetize stuff, but he handles like the most deadly snakes in the world. The guy's a goober. He's a goober, personality-wise. Just kind of a geeky, nerdy-ish goober, right? A little overweight, a little kind of Gomer Pyle-ish. I don't know. He's a goober. I don't say that insulting. The man knows snakes. He, he works with animals that, regardless of my experience, I won't work with. In scenarios, I won't work with them in. And some people, because he's a goober, talk shit about him. You know what? Delete, ban, goodbye. I'm here for the people that want to see me. And this is who I genuinely am. That's what I mean by marketing yourself on, on YouTube. And you can build a following in just about anything. The next one is blogging. Here's my rule on having a blog. Either be consistent or don't bother. Either you do at least a post a week or do not have a blog. Don't waste your time. Don't waste your time. Don't, don't expect it to ever work because it won't. Better do a post a day. I would rather you do a post that takes you five minutes once a day than a post once a week that takes you 25 minutes once a week. Break it up. Don't try to make super you know, awesome uh, posts that are like magazine articles unless that's your model. If, if, like if you're Brian Black with ITS, he built an online magazine. That's what it had to be. Professional quality. You know, he took his, took his knowledge too. Brian went to school and worked for a photographer. So he knows professional photography. So he built it to be that type of thing. But if your primary business is taking people fishing or brokering deals, you don't need your blog to be a magazine. You just need it to be active and let people, when people find it, and they start reading, they go, holy crap, this guy's into everything. This guy's got contacts everywhere. I want to meet this guy. Look at these beautiful sunsets or whatever it is. Okay? Um, next, email. Email's boring. Uh, email has been used so much that it's a lot harder to get people to opt in than it used to be. Email, you send an email to 20,000 people, all who like you, only three or 4,000 people even read it. It's still the best bang for your buck. Use a professional service. I recommend Aweber. I'll put a link in the show notes today where you can, you can get uh, an Aweber account set up. It's the best one I know of. I've, to tell you how much I believe that. I have been using them since 2004. It's 2004. I am still their loyal customer. I could export my list and go elsewhere, and I don't. There's a reason. But the thing about email is it's the one thing you have total control over. I just mentioned my fan, book, my fan page on Facebook. As I was building that, I would get 30 40% of my audience would cease everything I posted. Now... It's much smaller. Why? They want me to pay them to give me better exposure to my own people that I built. If I send an email to my email list, it does go to everybody on it. I have total control. So make sure you're making that part of your business. The phone. Yes, it still works. 
I do not use the phone in my business hardly at all. Some of you who try to get in touch with me by phone know it's very difficult to get me to even take a phone call. If it can be handled in an email or by a text, that's the way that I prefer it. But it fits my business model. If I was in a, a business model where I was working as a broker, which is kind of what I did in sales, then I would use the phone a lot. I would be calling every large corporate entity out there and asking to speak to someone in their sales department, preferably their sales manager, and asking the question, do you do client entertainment? You know, are you, you know, are you ever, you know, like, what do I do next with client entertainment? And I would know something about their business when I made the call. And I'm not going to go into how to make a good call like that today, but I would, you know, I would, I would button that down and I would say, you know, this is the service that I provide. Can I send you some information? about it. And most of the time they're going to say, yeah, sure. I'm going to send them the information. I'm going to follow up two days later. Not three, not five, not five minutes. I'm going to say, hey, did you get a chance to look at that? A lot of times the answer is going to be, I, I really just haven't had time. All right, that's fine, but hey, can I send you another email just with my contact information on it and uh, just keep it around. And uh, the next time you have clients that need something, maybe get in touch with me see if I can do something for you. I'm going to be off the phone in under a minute. Because I got, you know what? Sales managers, they don't have time for bullshit. They're like me. And when you're like that with them, you know what they're saying? Yeah, this guy's all right. This, and if I call back six months later, he'll take my call. This guy doesn't hassle me. He doesn't jerk, he doesn't jerk me around, right? You know, he doesn't keep, he doesn't have verbal vomit disease or whatever. He just makes his point. And if I'm interested, I'm interested. If I'm not, he goes away. They respect that. Salespeople that are good respect that, and I want to work with the best in that kind of a model. So that's just one place that I'm going to pick up the phone and use it. You know, so I'm going to, if I'm if I'm in the business of brokering deals, I'm not going to you know drive up and down the street and look for businesses. I'm going to find businesses online. I'm going to call them and I'm going to explain to them what my business model is, and I'm going to say, could I come in and take a look at what you do and see if it's a good fit for my customers. Not do you want to be. Can I come look at the way you take care of your customers and see if it's good enough for my clientele? The person that says no, you don't want to go see anyway. So the phone still works. Use it. Cold calling. People think phone and cold calling. It's not what I mean. When I say cold calling, I mean you show up at a place unannounced. Right? And, and But this works too. This works too because if you know what you're trying to deliver and what you want out of it, it's very easy. You got to go when the, you got to know your industry that you're in. You got to go when it's it's a non-busy time. If I was going to talk to chefs at restaurants, you know, then I'm going to go like a Tuesday at like two o'clock. That's probably the slowest period of time in their lives, but they're there because they're getting ready for the evening. They're open on Tuesday even if it's not a busy night. What have you? So that's when I'm going to go. So you got to know that shit, and you got to follow that because people will give you time when they have it, and they won't give you time when they don't. But you're going to go, and you're going to have an agenda. So if your agenda is, we're back to let's say the the guy that's the independent sales manager is brokering things, and your goal is simply, I'm interested in your business as an outlet for my clients, or if you do client entertainment, I have this other service. You're going to have a very clear cut sheet that explains exactly how that works. Basically, customer on one side, provider on the back, and you're going to find the decision maker that's in your niche. You're going to hand it to them. You're going to tell them what you, what you do, 
and you're going to say, this is what I do, and then you're going to do what magical thing that no one knows to do? Shut your flipping hole. Close your mouth, open your ears, and listen. This was the number one thing I had to drive home to salespeople. I'm talking pros that have been in the business 20 years. They keep talking, keep talking, keep talking. Shut your flipping hole and wait. Customer's going to do one of three things. Get out of here. I don't have time for you. I don't like you. You suck. Whatever. Fine. You don't want to waste your time with the guy that feels that way about you. You're out the door. You're going to talk to another one. Oh, this is interesting. I'll keep you in mind, just like the homeowner, right? Uh, I'll get in touch with if I need anything. And when you leave, they're either going to file it or bookmark it or go check it out or throw it away. They might be lying to you to be nice. doesn't matter. You're out the door. The third guy, the special guy, the one you want is going to say, Well, how does this work? How do I get on this list? I got some guys coming next week. This is what they're like. Do you have anything for people like that? Those are buying questions. How much business do you need in that model? How many clients do you need? 20, 30 that do one to two things with you a month? And, and you're done. You're not done, but I mean, you have a base income now. You have a base salary that you gave yourself. That can be done with cold calling here. Next one, if you have any kind of a service business like a farm or anything that is people actually come to a business at a point of sale locally and you're not on Google Local, and you if you're that person right now, what I want you to do, not too hard, just a little bit to wake yourself up, take your right hand, give yourself a good rap in the face because you hate money. You hate money. You can fill out a form for Google Local like that. That's when you go to like Google Maps and you type in uh, bowling alley. And Google Maps goes beep, 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 and shows you all the little bowling alleys around you. That's from Google Local. Go do it. Get on Google Local. Never don't have a local business with a local point of sale on Google Local. If, if, if I was any large company that had hundreds of franchisees out there, I wouldn't rely on them to do this. I would hire a college intern to come in and enter every single national franchise location into Google Local. Yelp and things like that are useful too, but Google local, I mean, Google's the number one search engine. That brings me to the next one, basic SEO, basic search engine optimization. Learn what title and description tags are. They don't work as good as they did. They don't get you ranked, blah, blah, blah. Horseshit. Horseshit, horseshit, horseshit. If you learn this basic thing, how many characters go in a title tag? You know, do you know what that number is? And you know how to put a title tag on your page? Well, learn how to put a title tag on your page. But the number is 60. You know more than 60 characters, so don't use any useless ones. For your description tag, you want 160. Use the keywords that people will look for. Use the location that you do business in. Okay? And repeat that in the description and the title and write it like sales copy. Okay? So... We have blue widgets serving the greater Fort Worth area. That's your title tag. Blue widgets for the greater Fort Worth area that do the best widgeting you ever widgeted a widget with. Click here to learn more. Find out about our special deals, whatever. Write it like it's actually ad copy in an old newspaper. Because when you get ranked in the search engines, there's two things that you're competing for. First, to get there, to show up. The second is actually to be clicked on. Everybody's worried about showing up. Nobody really thinks about being clicked on. So how effective is this? I did this, and right now, I'll just say this. For my farm, 
not for a survival podcast. The site's been around for a million years or whatever. Go to Google right now if you are in front of your computer and type in the following. Fort Worth duck eggs. Fort Worth duck eggs. Why? The closest big market that we have is Fort Worth. Anybody who lives in Keller or Richardson or uh, uh, Richland Hills or uh, Benbrook or anything on this side of Dallas-Fort Worth that doesn't have to drive two hours to get here, uh, that can't find them right in their backyard, they're going to say, well, Fort Worth is this, the big, so they're going to put it Fort Worth duck cakes. Boom, there we are. Nine Mile Farm located just north of Fort Worth. Nine, this is the, I can't make this up. I'm reading it on the fly. I just Googled it. Nine Mile Farm. Fresh duck eggs in Dallas, Fort Worth. So we do have them for if you'll come here, right? Located, this is the description, located just north of Fort Worth, Nine Mile Farm provides the freshest free-range duck eggs from pastured ducks, never fed soy or GMO ever. Compelling. I know that's what my customer wants. I've done the research. Most of our business that we get from people that just call us, that's how they find us. They're looking for duck eggs. They go to Fort Worth Duck Eggs. There we are. By the way, the next one, find local duck eggs from Fort Worth Farms and more, agrilicious.com. If you go there, we're listed. And then it's agrilicious, agrilicious, agrilicious. Agrilicious owns everything but the top spot. So I got my ass listed on agrilicious. When I get down... Um, one, two, three, because Agrilicious has four spots. So, so I got the, so number six, <laughs> nine mile farm, fresh duck, duck eggs, local harvest, localharvest.org. So if there's listing services that list people by geography for what you're trying to get on, get on there too. They'll link back to you and give you their link juice so that you can overtake them in a the generic term. So then I go down a little bit more, Fort Worth Farmers Markets, uh, Texas, localharvest.org. I'm on there. Next one, Nine Mile Farm Facebook. Next one, Nine Mile Farm Facebook, one of the subpages. Next one, Ducks Wanted, Fort Worth, Dallas area, BackyardChickens.com. Okay, I'm not there. I'm not there, I'm not there, I'm not there. I am present in nine out of the top ten listings on Google from a basic, basic, basic technique. 60 characters, 160 characters, write it like copy, include the geographic locations, and you're there. I haven't put the effort into making a page dedicated to Dallas. It's maybe a little bit more competitive, a little bit bigger market, but if I do Dallas duck eggs, I find fine local duck eggs from Dallas-Fort Worth, agrilicious, and I'm there. Another agrilicious page in number two, and I'm there. Third, Nine Mile Farm Fresh Duck Eggs in Dallas-Fort Worth. Next is a... Um, a Dallas News article that has nothing to do with me, and then a meetup group that has nothing to do with me. But even on the Dallas side, I'm there. Image search. My logo shows up in the image search, and a beautiful egg sitting on a beautiful piece of food at a restaurant called I Declare shows up. That's my egg. Understanding basic SEO is the way to go, man. Very basic, and I know advanced SEO techniques, and I could sit there and dedicate my life to owning Google for duck egg searches or whatever. This has already got us more business than we can handle. It's that simple. You could do it too. And in most instances, going for the local term in a niche, you can own it in a week or two because no one else is doing it, assuming you learn the basic rules. 
You don't have to spend lots of money, but get online and learn how to write a proper description tag and a proper title tag. And if you're using WordPress, and you should be for managing your site, get the all-in-one SEO pack, and there's, you don't have to know shit. Title, description, boom, done, and over. Every uh, episode of the show I do that I publish on the blog, I use that plug-in. Works great. Um, so that's another technique that many people don't understand, and they're trying to go to very, very advanced SEO, trying to own the world. Well, if you only do business locally, you only need to own the local business searches for what you're doing. Final thoughts today, though. Uh, number one, um, I don't do a lot of these shows because I think on some levels they're what I call intellectual masturbation. And what I mean by that is people like the idea of it. They like to hear somebody talk about it. They like to say, I'm going to do it someday. They, they like the concept, the feeling. It's going to be great when I finally do this, when I have time, whatever. Uh, horseshit. No one's going to do it for you. No one's going to do this for you. If all you do is get excited and happy about this, it'll last a day, and you'll be listening to what I talk about tomorrow. And I'll tell you that this is one of the more selfless types of shows I can do because This is what happens. I meet people. Because of you, I started this business, and now I've left my job and blah, blah, blah. I don't listen to you anymore. Because <laughs> when people get into their own business and they're not driving to work every day or whatever, they stop listening to podcasts and they start focusing on their actual business. I know that I actually lose paying members and things like that because they go off and farm their business and they're just worried about getting their business running now. But, I mean, that's what I'm supposed to do, Right. I mean, that is my job here, right, is to get you to actually take actions that work for you and your life and your situation and make you more self-sufficient. So that's what I do, man. But no one will do it for you. People all the time, they want to pitch me their idea, like if I bless it, if I put my hands on it, if I say, Jack Spirico approves of this business, it'll work. Or if I talk about you on the air, that your business will be automatically successful because mine is. No, I might be able to get you a burst of business. For some of my MSB partners, I'll be honest, we do become like their largest source of incremental revenue. Um, JM Bullion, I know we are that. The amount of business that we send to JM Bullion is amazing. But I have another company that we don't send much business to at all in the same niche. I think it's a marketing problem. Now, yes, JM is also a sponsor, but I, I still think it's a marketing problem that the site that the other vendor has doesn't convey the value as efficiently as Jam Bullion does. But I know I have people in the MSB that, you know, they get 15, 20 orders a year, but it doesn't cost them anything, so that's money, it's more business. They're fine with it. I prefer to make an MSB vendor very, very successful because that means that you see value in me having them there. I've gotten a lot more particular about who I take lately, Uh, I try not to do people we all, that have the things we already have. I've had to turn people down. That's why I set up the business directory, low-cost way for people to reach new audiences and things like that. But in the end, I can't, I can't make your business successful. Donald Trump can't make your business successful if he features it on The Apprentice. You can get a burst, but if the business is not actually run an efficient model that can capitalize on the burst... It's not going to be successful, and no one will build your business for you. No one will do any of the hard work for you. You have to do it yourself. The next one is, we talked about this already, it's not easy, but it is simple. If it was easy, everybody would do it. Everybody would do it. Simple means that it's something that you can do, and whatever you need to be able to do it, you can figure out and get started and get it done. So it's simple, but it's not easy. It was very simple when I started this show to get up at 3 o'clock, 3.30 in the morning, and develop an outline for the show, 
than get in my car and take 45 minutes to an hour that would have been wasted and turn it into content. It was very simple. There was nothing complicated about it at all. Because I didn't try to do something I wasn't good at. I'm good at presenting. I'm good at retaining knowledge. I'm good at teaching. And I'm passionate about self-sufficiency, self-reliance, independence, and liberty. So it wasn't like I had to learn that shit to be able to do it. Right? I had to learn how a podcast worked and how to publish the information and like what have you. But it was all simple. Like you said, it was simple for you because I loved it. And if you find what you love, it'll be simple for you too. But it wasn't easy. You know, when, when the, the phone went me, 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 because I didn't want to go on an alarm to wake up my wife. And I had to roll. It was so tempting to just tap, snooze, shut it off, get up at a normal time, reset the alarm. Nuh-uh. Get up and go. That's not easy. But it is, there's nothing. Not, no, when I see what I mean with simple, it's uncomplicated. Get your ass up and get to work. And that's what you got to understand. The next one you got to understand, you always have to prime a pump. You cannot get water out of an unprimed pump. You put a well in, and you say, okay, I've put my well in. I know there's water down there. You turn the pump on, or you start manual pump, you start pumping it. No water comes out. You say to the well, give me water. And what the well says back to you, if you understand how wells work, you give me water first, and I'll give you water. And what you have to do is get water from somewhere else and pour it down the pump, down the pipe, so the pipe's full of water. Then the pump will pump water. Or if you have a stove that burns wood, you say, give me heat. The stove says, fine, give me wood. And until you give wood to the stove, you don't get heat out of it. And by the way, you can't just stick a big bunch of logs in there and take a match and light it on the tip of a giant log and expect to get heat. you got to either use some sort of accelerant or you've got to build a small fire and feed it to become a large fire. But you got to do the work to get the heat to come out. Once the, the well starts running, you can have all the water you want. Once the, the stove gets hot, all you got to do is toss a log in it. It'll stay hot for a very, very long time. But you got to prime it. you got to fill it. you got to make it happen first. Businesses do not become successful in a week. They do not become successful in a month. And if you worked your ass off for 60 days in your business and you haven't made any money yet, you're probably on the right track. If you made a little bit of money, thank the God of your choice that you are really on the right track. But don't get discouraged because it's not as much as you think it should be. You have to stay dedicated to the mission. It generally takes one to two years to make a business create enough revenue that the entrepreneur in the business feels like the business is worth what they're putting into it. And that's why so many fail. Because it's real easy at 18 months to go, this just is not worth what I'm putting into it. And the reality is at that second, you're right. But if you're actually tracking what the business is doing and what you're building in equity, you're absolutely wrong. And you're six months to another six, six months to a year away from success at that point. Two, two and a half years. Do you have what it takes to stay committed? You know? When I was in jump school, they said every day, you know, if you don't want to be here, fall out of two runs and you're gone. Just fall out. Go ahead. No one will care. You just go to your unit, you won't have wings. Bye. Did you do you want it or not? Do you want to stick with it or do you want to fall out? I mean that's that's how you got to take it. And the last thing is when you're in charge you're also responsible. I see so many people they print up business cards with CEO on it or whatever. They don't even have a real company, you know, president. That's nice. And I'm glad you feel pride that you're the owner of your own, you know, thing. But would all would I say people, you know, what 
what, you know, what are you in your business? Oh, I'm the president, I'm the owner, I'm the content manager, I'm the, uh, the, the head janitor, uh, chief bottle washer, uh, things like that. Like all the shit I have to do is, is, is part of it. And, and what I, you know, what kind of your takeaway from that is when you're in charge, you're also responsible. See, that, that's the other thing that makes entrepreneurs fail is a lot of times when people are entrepreneurs and they start working hard on a business, they start trying to build it, it gets hard and it sucks. Like at work, you can say, well, it's so-and-so's fault because they're not pulling their weight or it's my boss's fault because he's being unreasonable or whatever. But it's kind of like the difference between football and wrestling, right, in high school. Like if you play football... You know, even if you make mistakes, it's still it's a team sport. It could be somebody else on that team didn't pull their weight, and that's why overall you lost that game. And it wasn't any one person. When you're wrestling, you end up on your back, and you hear, and you're pinned, it's your fault. It's your fault. It was all you. That's what going into business for yourself is. Even if you have employees and staff and whatever, in the end, the buck stops with you. You're the decision maker. You're the one that either takes the risk or is afraid to take the risk. You're the one that takes a smart risk with mitigation strategy, takes a stupid risk and gets hurt. It's all on you. You're responsible. But if you actually develop that, you'll find that you wouldn't want to live any other way. I, I will be completely honest to you. Um, the only thing that I fear in my life is that I would ever actually have to have a job again. I remember I spent so much of my life just wanting a good job, trying to find a better job, trying to, to move up the corporate ladder and thinking one day, you know, I'll be making good money. I'll have a company car. I'll have respect. I'll have people working for me. It'll be great. And one day I got to all that and I said, this isn't so great. And, it, you know, well, if you keep doing it, you'll move up. And I looked at the people that I worked for and said, they don't look at, they actually look less happy than me, even though they have more money and more responsibility. They look less happy than me. And I would look around and I would see people that were doing the jobs that I used to do, like an inside salesperson or a guy sweeping the floor, because I did that too, trust me. And I thought to myself, they think if they could just get to where I am, they would have it made, they would have it all. And for some people, they do. I know people, they get to that level of, of professional success, and they are actually happy with it. They love what they do. You know, they do. They, they love, like for sales, they love traveling and, and all of it, and I hated it. And I think back to like when I packed boxes in a warehouse. When I first moved to Texas, I worked in a warehouse for home interiors and gifts in Carrollton, Texas. And for $5.10 an hour, I worked in a warehouse in the summertime. It was in 130-degree-plus range, packing boxes all day long, killing myself. For five dollars and ten cents an hour, and I remember in the like the busy season in, in the fall, as the days got shorter, um, and it was cold out, so they kept the doors shut except where the trucks were loaded. You, you, you'd work a, a full day. You get there in the dark. You go home in the dark. Ugh. And I remember I didn't care. It was just a job, and I worked my I did my best at it. You know, I worked hard. But I you know I walk through a store now and I see people that are forty five, fifty years old working behind cash registers. And if that's you, I don't mean to put you down. I'm just saying how I look at it and I go, oh man, I don't... When there's so much opportunity, why? And some people like it. If you like it, hell's bells, brother. There's no problem with it if you like it. I'm not putting you down if you like it, but if you don't like it, why? Why are you letting other people make this choice for you? 
There's so much available. And if you think to yourself today, I listen to everything Jack said today as far as the business, and none of those sounds like things I would want to do. What does? What do you like to do? What do you like to learn about? What do you like to teach? Do you like to teach? Or do you like to just more or less learn? How can you apply what you love to a revenue model? And if you say you can't, well, I'll tell you two things. First, you're right. Because you know what people say. If you think you can't, you're right. Because as long as you believe that, you can't. But on the other side of it, you're completely wrong. Because somebody somewhere is probably doing it. Somebody somewhere, I'll give you one last one. I'll bet you, I'll bet you, you could make a business out of bird feeders. And I don't mean just building them. I mean, do what I said with cold calls. Go around in neighborhoods and say, we set up bird feeder habitats. We set up feeders with squirrel production and whatever, and we set them all up in your backyard. You buy the feeders from us. And then once a week we come around, we clean the feeders. We make sure there's no infections. You light bleach in a brush. We refill your feeders for you. And all you do is look at beautiful birds. We can do uh, bird baths and small fountains and things like that. And we know all the birds in the area. We have a guide. We have a website where when you see a bird that you have never seen before, you report it on the website and other people can interact with it. We have a Facebook page for that. And we're helping the bird population uh, because it's a key thing to help our ecosystems. And you can turn that into a business. I mean... I'll put it to you this way. You give me something you love, and you see if I can't monetize that shit. Why? Because I am open to the reality that it can be done. And as soon as you become open to that reality, you see the how. You see what to do. And people always come up with this shit about, well, those businesses only work on paper. Correct. As they are initially birthed in the mind of an entrepreneur, they only work on paper. That's why you get off your ass, you put them on pavement, and you get them running, and you adapt and adjust along the way, and you get shit done. And you can't make any excuses, because what's my last bullet point? When you're in charge, you're responsible. No one else is. No one else is. And getting featured on somebody's page or in somebody's newsletter, they're all great marketing strategies. They won't fix your problem if you have a problem. If you have a problem in a business, it's operational. The business is not functioning the way that it should. You find the problem in the operation, you correct it. You're not getting enough visitors, fine, you fix that problem. You start getting visitors to your site, nobody calls you, nobody contacts you. Your site's the problem. It's not your product, it's not your price, it's your site. The process isn't there. You fix the process. How do I do it, Jack? JFGI, man. JFGI. That's how you fix it. JFGI. What's that mean? <laughs> JFGI, JFGI. I'll tell you what. Go to Google and type in JFGI. You'll see what it means. That's how you, you just keep working. You just keep doing. Because until your business is successful, the only thing you need to be working on is making it successful. You don't have to worry about delivering product if you have no business. So you just hammer it out and work like your life depends on it. Work like you don't still have that other job, even if you do. Work like if you don't get something out of your business in the next two months, that you're going to not be able to pay your rent. It doesn't mean that your business will pay your rent in two weeks. It doesn't mean you get scared and you do stupid shit, right? And you take too big a stupid risk. But it doesn't mean you pour your heart and your soul into it. Because next thing you know, your business is paying your rent or your mortgage. And you think, holy shit, that's kind of like I paid off my house. And then it pays your house pay your car payment, and it pays your car insurance. All of a sudden, surplus is used to pay off your debt. Now you're debt free. 
and all of a sudden your business is making you more money than your job. And even if your intention wasn't to walk away, you do. And everybody around you looks at you like it just happened, like you're lucky. You, only you will know the truth. Only you will know how much work it was, how much dedication it took, how much faith in yourself it took, how much belief in yourself that it took. And no one will ever understand unless they've done it themselves. And people will say to you, oh, it must be nice. And the best response you can give them is, it is. Why don't you do it too? With that, this has been Jack Spierka with another edition of the Survival Podcast, helping you figure out how to live that better life if times get tough, or even if they don't. Like me, and the cats in the cradle and the silver.